Welcome to Stand Forever, the podcast based on the truth that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Stand Forever originated from the First Baptist Church in Kearney, Missouri, just outside of Kansas City. Our teacher is Ken Parker, the church's senior pastor. In a world of shifting sands and cultural and social turmoil, it is vitally important that the people of God rely on the Word of God. To remind us all of that importance now, here's Ken. The story has been told by some famous preachers, but it actually happened to Joseph Parker, who was the minister of the City Temple in London. An older lady waited on Parker in his vestry after the service to thank him for the help that she received from his sermons. You do throw such wonderful light on the Bible, doctor, she said. Do you know that until this morning I had always thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were man and wife? Well, I'm certainly glad we got that cleared up. But that little story illustrates the rationale for preaching about the Bible every year, something that we do. We preach about the Bible every year, not just preaching the Bible as we do every week, but preaching about it each year. It's important that we emphasize what it is, how we received it, and how we ought to apply it. There's probably not anything earth-shaking that I'm going to say today that you haven't heard before, but it's still important. In fact, some of the explanations that I'm going to give I've given before. It's the same, and it's the same because it hasn't changed. But I still think we need to review it. We still need to understand it. Now, I'm not judging at all, but if the statistical data holds true for our church, like the rest of Christians in America, the majority of us, likely 80 to 90 percent or more, and this is anecdotal, not scientific, 80 to 90 percent or more don't have a regular quiet time don't have a regular time alone with God where we pray and read His Word, never share our faith, and have never read the Bible through from beginning to end. Little more than half of our worship attenders these days attend our Bible study on any given Sunday. Some people we know, of course, study the Bible outside of church, but the fact remains a lot of people don't. I'm not being ugly, certainly not being judgmental, But I'm just pointing out the need for what I think this kind of sermon should be. And listen, we claim claim to be people of the book. What about those churches and those denominations that don't have such a high view of Scripture? Not you guys, and let me be clear, not you guys, but through the years in other places, I've had people get mad because I've said, for example, Being pro-life is the only defensible position as a Christian. People got mad because I said we ought to pray for our president. And by the way, I've said that for a number of years, years that overlap both the Democrats and the Republicans. People have been mad because I've said marriage will always be for a man and a woman only. When they get mad about that kind of stuff, it doesn't bother me a bit. The only thing that potentially bugs me is when I realize they just don't know the truth. Remember, Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. People can't be set free by a truth they never know. So that's the impetus behind this particular sermon, Stand Forever. I'm not asking you to do that. That's the title of the sermon. (laughs) 
We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, and I'll invite you to stand for a moment as we talk about stand forever. And let's take a look at the Scripture together. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. Say this with me. But the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. So the subject today is the Bible. Then the next couple of weeks, we're going to be addressing both the sanctity of human life as well as some other things that need to be addressed. The sermon forthcoming is going to be called simply, Ten Things That Need to Be Said. Ten Things That Need to Be Said. Now, I promise, and I've been preaching for a while now, I probably would have failed preaching class with the sermon I'm going to preach in the next couple of weeks. Nonetheless, we're going to preach it. Anyway, our podcast is based on the text for today, and we call it Stand Forever. We have, in fact, a beautiful rendering that Leslie Riley put together for us of part of that text in the fireside lobby. It's so important. It's primary that we understand the Word of God will stand forever. So let me give you just a little bit of background for the use of the Isaiah text, and then we're going to move through the message together. The prophet hears the voice. And in response to his request, this is followed by the message that he is to give. Men who are self-sufficient do not respond with eagerness to God's Word. The exile made the people aware of their frailty. As one writer said, and I quote, what unites all human enterprises is their transience. Flowers may look beautiful, but where will they be tomorrow? God is the one enduring reality in a constantly changing world, and He has Himself designed it so. Thus, the last phrase in the text, and it's true, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. So why do we believe? Why do we believe the Scripture? Why do we believe the Word of God. Why do we believe the Bible will stand forever? A few thoughts this morning. First of all, the Bible is the Word of God. I've said that exact phrase to you scores of times from this pulpit. The Bible is the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This includes the man of God and the woman of God. We have the Bible as the Word of God so that we will be prepared for whatever it is God wants us to do. So how did we get the Bible in its current form? I will do what I can to simplify the explanation, but here goes. Now listen, I say every year, every year whenever I talk about this, if history is not your thing, if this bores you to tears, take a nap. Feel free to take a nap and have the person next to you wake you up in about seven minutes, all right? Now, in the meantime, your name is going to show up on the screen. (laughs) But even as Jesus told his disciples, sleep on, take your rest. 
The 27 books of the New Testament were formally confirmed as canonical, that is, accepted as being accurate, accepted as being Scripture by the Synod of Carthage in A.D. 397. By A.D. 400, the standard of 27 New Testament books is accepted by the church in the East and the West as confirmed by Athanasius, Jerome, Augustine, and three church councils. It is neither a secret, and listen carefully, neither is it a mystery how this came about. People were moved by God to write. God inspired people to write. The Holy Spirit superintended the writing of Scripture so that it is completely truth without any mixture of error. That's what we believe. In fact, let's take a look at our faith statement as Baptists. This is from the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of Himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ who is Himself the focus of divine revelation. So, how did all this come about? These sacred writings came to us through a divine process. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Bible was written by some 40 authors in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek in about 13 different countries on three different continents over a period of some 1,600 years. Yet remarkably, remarkably, its storyline is unified. This is, of course, when we think about the original autographs that we're talking about, this is one reason why we shouldn't look to just one translation of Scripture and say, that's the one and all the others are wrong. This is one reason, for example, why the King James only argument is flawed. I still cherish, let me be clear, I still cherish the King James Bible my parents gave me over 40 years ago, but Jesus didn't speak English. Certainly not Elizabethan English. And Peter and Paul and John, etc., didn't write in that kind of English. Neither did Moses or Daniel. The King James Version, like other versions, is a translation from manuscripts based on original languages, but just like other translations are. I've often wondered, perhaps you have too, why we don't have the original autographs. Who would have kept them? How many nations would have fought for them? How many various groups would have killed to possess them? How many so-called holy wars would have been fought to own them? How many people would have chosen to worship those written words? Listen, we don't worship the Bible of our God, but we worship the God of our Bible, and He gave us the Bible. It's important. It is His revelation of Himself to humanity. While we do not have the original autographs, God has seen to it that there is no fundamental doctrine, no fundamental doctrine that has been changed by the copying of Scripture throughout the centuries. 
For example, a comparison of the Isaiah scroll discovered in the Qumran library agrees almost, almost verbatim with the Masoretic text from which we have our Hebrew Bible and which comes to us after a full 1,000 years of copying. So indulge me as we trace the history of Scripture quickly up to this point. So just take a moment, as I say each year, just pretend you're in a classroom, and I promise I'm going to take the fastest route to the finish with this. You may not believe that in a couple of minutes, but I'm telling you the truth. <clears throat> 1500 BC, God tells Moses to write down the law for the people. The first five books of the Old Testament are called the Law of Moses, or referred to as the Pentateuch, meaning five. 1500 to 400 BC, these are books of history, prophecy, and poetry written by Samuel and David, Solomon, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Amos, and others. Scribes copy these books as the originals wear out. We get now to 450 B.C. Ezra collects and arranges the books according to Jewish traditions. These books make up the Hebrew Scriptures, that which we refer to today as the Old Testament. This is the Bible of Jesus. What would Jesus read? We're reading it this year as a church family, the Old Testament. 250 to 100 B.C., Hebrew Scriptures translated into Greek by Jewish scholars. This Greek translation is called the Septuagint, meaning 70, for the tradition that 70, or some scholars will note, 72 men translated it. 100 B.C. to A.D. 100, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. Copies of portions of Old Testament books and other writings are sealed in clay jars and hidden in caves. A.D. 45 to 100, Jesus' followers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, James, and Jude, write letters and historical accounts to churches and friends throughout the Roman Empire. They quote from all but eight, this is important, they quote from all but eight of the Old Testament books. 100 to 500 A.D., the writings of Jesus' followers are copied and translated from Greek into other languages and spread across the world as far as India and China. A.D. 200 to 300, Christianity reaches Britain. A.D. 250 to 350, church fathers accept the writings of the Gospels and Paul's letters as well as canonical. Canonical is from a Greek word referring to the rule of faith and truth. The Council of Carthage lists 27 New Testament books as authentic. They, they are the 27 that we have today in our New Testament. Fast forward, A.D. 313, Christianity is legalized in the Roman Empire. A.D. 325, Codex Vaticanus, an early handmade copy of nearly all the Bible. It resides in the Vatican Library from 1481 and is released to scholars in the late 1800s. A.D. 350, Codex Sinaiticus, an early handmade copy of all the New Testament and part of the Old Testament. It is discovered in 1844 in St. Catherine's Monastery at Mount Sinai. A.D. 410, Jerome is commissioned by Pope Damascus to translate the Bible into Latin. This is called the Latin Vulgate. It takes some 22 years to complete. It is the Bible that is then used for the next 1,000 years. 
A.D. 450 to 600, the Roman Empire falls. A.D. 500 to 900, Jewish scribes, Masoretes, develop a meticulous system of counting words, counting words to ensure the accuracy of each copy of the Hebrew Scriptures. A.D. 1382, the first whole Bible in English is translated from Latin and named the Wycliffe Bible after John Wycliffe, the Oxford scholar and priest. A.D. 1455, we have the first printed book, the Gutenberg Press prints the Latin Bible. And then A.D. 1516, Erasmus, a priest and Greek scholar, publishes a new Greek edition of the New Testament. A.D. 1525, William Tyndale, an Oxford scholar, translates the New Testament from the Greek language. A.D. 1535, the Coverdale Bible is the first printing of the complete English Bible. A.D. 1555, England's Queen Mary Tudor outlaws English Bible versions by Protestants and then persecutes Protestant leaders. A.D. 1560, we have the Geneva Bible. Hundreds of people sweet, hundreds of people flee to Switzerland. They didn't, they didn't sweet to Switzerland. <laughs> Spent a long morning, people work with me. Hundreds of people flee to Switzerland to avoid persecution. A new English translation is then printed in Geneva and contains theological notes by Protestant scholars. A.D. 1611, the angels begin to sing as the sky parts. <laughs> King James I of England commissions 54 scholars to translate a Bible without theological notes. They utilized the Bishop's Bible and some available Greek and Hebrew texts. That is then revised in 1769. 1881, we have the Revised Version. 1901, we have the American Standard Version. 1952, we have the Revised Standard Version. 1971, we have the New American Standard. It is updated in 1977, 1995, and then most recently in 2020. We move ahead to 1978, we have the New International Version. It's revised in 2011. A.D. 1982, we have the new King James Version, and all of the thus thou art worked, those are all taken out to make it easier to read. They're replaced with more contemporary language. A.D. 1989, we have the new Revised Standard Version. Then we find ourselves in 1996, we have the new Living Translation, not to be confused with the new Living Paraphrase. The New Living Translation, revised in 2004, 2007, 2013, and 2015. Skip ahead to 2001, we have the English Standard Version. It's revised in 2007, 2011, and then 2016. In 2016, we're told there will be no more revisions, and then a few months later, it's announced there will be some more revisions. Then we get to A.D. 2001, we have the Net Bible, which was originally only online, but then later printed. 2004, we have the Holman Christian Standard Bible, H.C.S.B., or lovingly referred to by some as the Hardcore Southern Baptist Version. 
And then we have in 2017, the Christian Standard Bible, CSB, revised in 2020. So, you survived that. You did really well. What's the point? Why is there a need for all of these? Why has there been a need for all of these translations? Because the work of translation is never fully completed. Remember when you were a kid and you said, oh man, I'm down with that. It meant you had the flu. Today, people say, I'm down with that. It means I'm good with that. I'm all in. I agree. The usages of words change, and words have shades of meaning, so we need to keep updating to make sure that the truth of the Word of God is communicated to a current generation. And the current generation, just like all of us, we need to know how we got the Bible. That will keep us, by the way, from avoiding the Mormon fallacy of somebody walking along and uncovering some things under this earthen pile and here are the golden tablets. That's not how it happened. What I've shared with you is how it happened. So we want to make sure people understand that. That will allow for the current generation and subsequent generations to believe and understand the Scripture. The problem is, far too often, kids will sit in a classroom at a university, kids who have grown up, even in conservative churches like this, they will sit in a classroom at a university and someone with Ph.D. behind his name will say in a very mocking tone, don't you know the Bible was written by men? Your pastors and idiots. I want our kids to know that it was written by men. No debate. They already know their pastor is an idiot. <laughs> but I want our kids to know that it was, and further, I want them to know that it was, lest they be led astray by someone who sounds intelligent and doesn't believe. The Bible doesn't, we know the Bible doesn't deal with every single situation in detail with which mankind must deal. It's not going to tell you exactly what career path to take or the name of this person that you should marry. It will give you principles to live by that will help you make life decisions that will, in fact, honor God. A lot of people, you know this, especially in today's culture, a lot of people doubt the Bible. And most often, they want to use some kind of science to argue against it. And yet, while not a science text, the Bible does, in fact, at some level, deal with some issues of science. We're not going to deal with those in detail this morning. But think about what people have believed previously about how the world came about, and think about what the Bible says related to that. So, for example, the ancient Egyptians believed the earth was supported by pillars. The Greeks believed that the earth was carried on the back of a giant by the name of Atlas. Hindus believed the earth was resting on the back of giant elephants that were standing on the back of a giant turtle that was standing on the back of a huge coiled serpent that was swimming in a great cosmic sea. And you think you're a person of faith. <laughs> and yet, Job 26.7 says, He talking about God, he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. Nothing. Job may very well be the oldest literature known to man. 
How did Job know that the earth just hung in space? Divine inspiration. How do we know that? Divine inspiration. All Scripture is breathed out by God. The Bible is a book that does something to us when we read it. It encourages us at times. It convicts us. It directs us. It teaches us. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It does that, you know. I've said before that every man who preaches in this place ought to stand and say, the Bible says. Or every man that preaches in this place ought to stand and say, according to the Word of God. Don't ever, hear me clearly, church, don't ever settle for a man who simply says, I think. Dr. Jason K. Allen of Midwestern Seminary once said, the Bible isn't a text with which we negotiate. It is God's divine authoritative Word to which we submit. So the Bible is... The Word of God. A few more thoughts and they'll go much more quickly. Number two, the Bible reveals the Son of God. Not only the Bible is the Word of God, but the Bible reveals the Son of God. John 1, beginning with verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the living Word, and the Bible is the written Word. The written Word always points to the living Word, that is Jesus. In fact, throughout the entirety of all the texts of Scripture, we are pointed to Jesus. We are pointed to Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Redeemer, our Savior. The Bible points to Him from beginning to end, all the way back, in fact, all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. The Bible, I believe, mentions something of Jesus. God is speaking to the serpent that tempted Eve to sin, and He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he, and I believe that's Jesus, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what theologians refer to as proto-evangelium. It is the first announcement of the gospel. It's the first time in the Bible that the good news is given that there is coming a Savior into the world. The woman's offspring will ultimately have victory over the devil. And that ought to make a Baptist dance. The Bible gives prophetic information, in fact, about Jesus. You go back to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It's fulfilled in what is said in Matthew 2, 1 through 5, the birth of Jesus. Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 53, speak of Christ, our Redeemer. Psalm 22. This one psalm contains some 33 direct prophecies that were fulfilled at Calvary. And it was written a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. Most of these prophecies, and I think this is important, most of these prophecies were not fulfilled by friends of Jesus, but rather by his enemies. And think about it, they had the most to lose 
if these prophecies were in fact fulfilled. Ultimately, we know the Bible gives to us the gospel of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, I'll invite you to say it with me. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. So the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible reveals the Son of God. Thirdly, the Bible explains the plan of God. Hebrews 1, beginning with verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, and that's written by the writer of Hebrews a long time ago, he says, those were the last days. If people ask you, are we in the last days? Yes, we are. And we have been for a couple thousand years. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The Bible explains the plan of God. God's plan all along had been to redeem mankind by the sacrifice of Jesus, His Son. So even though sin entered the world, there's still hope. Our hope is in Jesus, and listen to me carefully, Jesus was never the plan B of God. God knew from the very beginning that we would sin and that Jesus would be sacrificed. Regardless of how terrible things may get in this world, God's redemptive plan will prevail. No matter how bad things get or how crazy things might become, you can rest assured that ultimately the plan of God will prevail. There's never been a moment in all of history that God was surprised by anything. God is working all things together for good. Romans 8, 28. God's plan will prevail. Now, a lot of people today think they know how it's all going to play out. They'll give you timelines and years, and they're going to say, this is when this is going to happen, and this is how this is going to happen, etc. I'm going to tell you, I know what's going to happen. I know, I do. I know exactly how it's going to play out. And I get this from our good friend Simon Peter, who said, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's exactly what's going to happen. So the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible reveals the Son of God. The Bible explains the, the plan of God. Fourthly and finally, the Bible displays the heart of God. The Bible displays the heart of God. 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, say it with me, God is love. Now certainly God is perfect and God is holy and God is just and God is righteous, but don't miss the reality. God is love. One of the reasons, I believe, for the popularity of the Bible is because people long to know a being that is fully and truly, in essence, love. People long to be loved. The Bible is of utmost importance because it explains God, and it explains God's love to us. As Os Guinness notes, and I think this is very sad, he writes, 
I have been in mega churches where there was no cross in the sanctuary and no Bible in the pulpit, and where the sermons refer more to the findings of Barna and Gallup than to those of the Bible and God. May it never be so here. The Bible displays the heart of God by telling us God is love. Anybody here need to know you're loved? Oh, come on. Anybody, anybody here need to know you're loved? You are loved, and you are loved by the God of the universe. The Bible displays the heart of God by telling us God is love. It does this by telling us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The Bible displays the heart of God by reminding us that God shows his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I'm just going to ask you, in your life, in your life, what difference does the Bible actually make? You see, if we, if we say we believe it, and we say we would defend it, and we say it ought to be read, and we say it ought to be a big deal in the church, and it ought to be a big deal in our culture. If we say we believe it, but we never read it, meditate on it, study it, or apply it, it makes little to no difference in our lives. Dr. Bart Ehrman serves as a religious studies professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And although he teaches the New Testament, he does not believe the New Testament is actually the Word of God. In fact, as a professing agnostic, Ehrman is known for debating evangelicals about the inspiration of Scripture. Every semester, he begins one of his courses with a class exercise. He begins by saying, how many of you believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God? According to Professor Ehrman, the majority of students at UNC raise their hands. And then he asks, how many of you have read, and he selects a popular novel, so he might say, how many of you have read The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins? And usually, he said, every hand goes up across the room with only few exceptions. And then Ehrman follows with a third question. How many of you have read the entire Bible? And virtually no one raises their hand. Then comes Ehrman's punch. He says, now, I can understand why you would read Collins' book. It's entertaining. But if you really believed God wrote a book, wouldn't you want to read it? If you really believe God wrote a book, then wouldn't you want to read it? 